Well, there are, as you might have noticed throughout the course of your life, many misconceptions that exist concerning Jesus. I grew up Roman Catholic, I went to a Roman Catholic grammar school, I went to a Roman Catholic high school, and I became accustomed to seeing, whether it was in textbooks or whether it was on pictures uh, hanging up in hallways, a depiction of Jesus that had him with kind of this long, really light brownish hair, these kind of piercing blue eyes and somewhat fair skin. You've probably seen the kind of pictures that I've seen, and there are variations of those pictures. And to be clear, the scriptures don't provide us with a linguistic description of what Jesus' physical appearance was like. The Gospels uh, don't provide for us the necessary ingredients for a composite sketch. But suffice it to say, there's good reason to say that the conception that many have in their minds as to what Jesus looks like is a misconception. It's far more likely that Jesus had darker eyes and a darker complexion and darker hair than what was seen, at least by me, in that popular depiction. The misconceptions, though, run much deeper than uh, cosmetic appearance. Some people find it inconceivable that Jesus, the same Jesus who stretched forth his hand and healed a leper, they find it inconceivable that such a one could believe in and teach about a place called hell. But the idol of a Jesus that wouldn't touch the subject of hell with a 10-foot pole quickly gets demolished to smithereens when you just walk through the Gospels. You see that Jesus did speak about a judgment that is coming. You see that Jesus did speak about hell. And it would be quite unloving if the sinless Son of God, who knew about this place, never spoke about this place. But he did speak about it quite often. And we must listen to what he has said. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to walk through at least some of Matthew's Gospel. I'll be making reference to other places. We're going to walk through some of Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to see Jesus talk about the doctrine of hell. You've heard it said before, and you've heard me say it before, that Jesus taught on the subject of hell more than any other person in the Bible. One way for you to feel that, I know you acknowledge that, but one way for you to feel that is to read through Matthew's Gospel, even just see what we're going to do tonight, and see how often he speaks about it. He speaks about it multiple times in Matthew 5. He speaks about it in Matthew 7. He speaks about it in Matthew 8. He speaks about it in Matthew 10, 11, 13, 18, 22, 23, 24, 25. He speaks about it over and over again. There's 28 chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. And he speaks about the doctrine of hell, at least by my count. And, and there's other implications maybe in other cases, but just in light of what I just referenced to you, that's close to 40% of the Gospel of Matthew, at least by way of chapter divisions, that he is referencing um, the doctrine of hell. I do want to let you know first, just so you know, he's not the first one to talk about the subject of hell in Matthew's Gospel. Do you know who is? John the Baptist. You might remember that John the Baptist spoke about hell, but he also spoke about hell with relationship to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, speaking of Christ, he said, His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Matthew chapter 3, verse 12. 
But we will move on from the forerunner of the Lord to the Lord himself, beginning with the words that the Lord spoke about hell. First time we see him reference Gehenna in the Sermon on the Mount. That happens in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. I'll call your attention right here to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. Here, we are in the Sermon on the Mount at this time. And Jesus begins to show the true depths that the law of God plumbs. The law of God goes much deeper than just simply external obedience to the law. And the very first commandment that he begins to expound is the sixth commandment. And watch how he expounds and plumbs the depths of its application. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22 read, You have heard that it was said to those of old... You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire." Now, one thing to note right here is that Jesus is not contradicting, nor is he correcting the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Rather, he is refuting, if you will, the simplistic application of it, saying it goes beyond just simply taking another person's life unlawfully. Yes, everyone knew that if you commit the sin of murder, you would be in the danger of the judgment But he goes on to say what people didn't know. Whoever is angry at his brother or with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So a point for takeaway right here is that Jesus is saying the problem isn't just murder. It's the sinful anger. It's the attitude that gives rise to murder. That will also put somebody in danger of the judgment. Now, if you go on here, you see that Jesus isn't only talking about sinful anger that's inside and can kind of simmer inside of a person long before it's expressed in murder. He talks about that kind of sinful anger that shows itself in contempt, terms of contempt. Jesus said that whoever says to his brother, Raka, it's an epithet of derision. It could mean different things like blockhead, empty-headed, things like that. Lucy would be in big trouble for all the times she said such things to Charlie Brown. Such a one, he said, would be in danger of the council. But then he goes on and he says, you fool, whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Now, quick note here. When Jesus says the word fool here, moros in the Greek, it may connote more than just saying somebody who is just absent, uh, has, has an absence of, um, you know, in, intelligence. When you look at the way the word fool is used in Matthew's gospel, for instance, it's used of individuals that do not know the living God. It's used of those, uh, that foolish man in Matthew chapter 7, verse 26. Jesus uses it with reference to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, 17. It's used three times of the foolish virgins in Matthew 25, verses 2, 3, and 8. And remember, if we have our Old Testament context in mind, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So what may be going on here is that to call somebody a fool is to make a kind of judgment upon their eternal state. It's essentially calling somebody a fool. You're separated from God. You're essentially accursed. Not in a way that is legitimate like Jesus did with the scribes and Pharisees, but in a way that is an expression of derision 
and contempt. That's what's going on here. So Jesus is showing that long before there is the action of murder, there is the attitude of sinful anger. And there is a speech that reveals those kind of attitudes. And all of those things can be found, if you will, on the same spectrum. M.R. DeHaan told a story found in a newspaper uh, that had reported a tragic incident that occurred in South America where a peasant had killed his best friend while they were arguing about political differences. When asked why he did it, he replied with these chilling words. He said, we began peacefully, and then we argued. I killed him when I ran out of words. And you might say that one of the points that Jesus is making right here is that long before he ran out of words, he was in danger of the judgment. The matter was still serious. He wasn't only in danger of judgment when he committed murder. He was in danger of the judgment when he had sinful anger and contempt towards his friend. It's not just murder that would land somebody in the lake of fire. It's also this expression of derision, this, this calling somebody an empty head or a fool and so on. So let me make a few doctrine of hell observations in light of that brief exposition of what Jesus is doing right there in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, showing how the law, the sixth commandment, goes much deeper than just avoiding murdering somebody. Because doubtless the scribes and Pharisees would say, we never murdered anyone, but yet they had sinful anger in their hearts. Terms of derision would come from their mouths, from them and from others. So here are some applications with regards to the doctrine of hell. First, you see Jesus reference Gehenna in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. Here in our text, it's referred to as the danger of hellfire. First thing I want you to see, his contemporaries were familiar with it. It wasn't some reaction from the crowd of people saying, like, what is this place? It wasn't some like bewilderment, like, we never heard of this place. Well, what is this Gehenna? As Alfred Edersheim has noted, at the time of Christ, the punishment of the wicked was certainly regarded as of eternal duration. We could look at intertestamental writings together and we would see plenty of evidence for that. So the first thing I want you to see, when Jesus speaks about the danger of hellfire, he's just assuming, rightly, that all of his contemporaries know what he's talking about. Second point I want you to see is that Jesus did not shy away from the subject of hell. Wait till you see how many times he references it throughout Matthew's Gospel. He didn't shy away from it. Charles Spurgeon once said, There are some ministers who never mention anything about hell. I heard of a minister who once said to his congregation, If you do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be sent to that place which is not polite to mention. He ought not to have been allowed to preach again, I am sure, if he could not use plain words. Jesus, you might say, mentioned the place that that preacher thought was the impolite place to mention. And you're quickly introduced to that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. Third point I want you to see here is that hell was a punishment worse than what the council could inflict. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, if you look at your text, Jesus speaks about an individual being in danger of the council. And the council could do, could do some harm. The council could render bodily beatings or capital punishment. But there was a punishment that was even worse than a death sentence. And that is Gehenna, the fire of hell. You would also notice in this context that Jesus had been speaking about a little bit earlier in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, the kingdom of heaven. 
chapter 5, verse 22, when he says the danger of hellfire is the opposite of the kingdom of heaven. So here we are, first time Jesus mentions hell, and already we have quite a doctrine of hell that is developing here. Jesus' use of it, he's not shying away from it, the people are familiar with it, it's a punishment that's worse than a physical, bodily punishment or death sentence that the council could render. Let me tell you a quick, uh, quick word about Gehenna, first time that this word is used. The word Gehenna, as it's rendered in our text, the um, hell of fire, um, danger of hellfire, this this word Gehenna is derived from the Hebrew um, Gehinnom, meaning the Valley of Hinnom. Now, a little bit of context here historically. The Valley of Hinnom was in the southern, uh, southern part, southwestern part of Jerusalem. If you were to look at some of the reigns of certain kings like Ahaz and Manasseh in the Old Testament, you would see that in this valley, child sacrifice occurred to the pagan god Molech. So this was a place that was associated, this Valley of Hinnom, with the horrible practice of child sacrifice. Well, when King Josiah comes along some years later, when he comes along, what he does, according to 2 Kings um, chapter 23, verse 10, he defiled Topheth, which is in the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or daughter pass through the fire to Molech. So there was this place used for child sacrifice. Josiah comes along and he defiles that land so no one can use it. The question you have then is, what does that mean? And how did he defile that land? One commentator, Benson, offered this suggestion, which I think makes um, good sense. By throwing different kinds of filth and dead carcasses into it and making it the burying place of the city. So it appears, and there's some debate about this, it appears that this place had become defiled as becoming a kind of trash heap where carcasses, where garbage, where awful, where all of these things would be brought and then burned in a continuous way. And then it became a figure for the punishment of hellfire. Now I want you to know a lie that is out there. A lie that is out there is that when Jesus was talking about Gehenna, some people will put it like this. They'll say, Jesus was just talking about the garbage dump. I remember some years back, over a decade ago, um, I was reading a book on early church theology. I went to a gym on Forest Avenue, and this didn't really work out too well practically, but in between sets, I would try to read some of my book on early church theology. In God's providence, it happened to work out well because I saw a, a, a contemporary, somebody who went to a different school but was my same age, and he came up to me in the gym, and we got to catch up. And I remember I had known, I had known him, and I remember that his mom had start, started going to an evangelical church and that um, he and his brother had gone at times as well. So he saw my book, we got to talking, and what he said to me was, did you know that hell is not real? That Jesus was just talking about a garbage dump? Right there in the gym. So what I'm telling you right now, somebody like over 10 years ago shows up at a gym, we haven't seen each other in a while, sees me with an early church theology book, and decides to let me know something that he found out, namely the lie that when Jesus was talking about Gehenna, he's not talking about hell like you people think. He was just talking about a garbage dump. And what I would tell you is what uh, one writer some, year, some years back had, had done in one of his books. I would tell you just to go through all the times that Jesus uses the word hell or Gehenna 
substitute the word garbage dump in there and see if it makes sense. Right? Do you think Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in the garbage dump? No. Do you think when the Pharisees went out to make disciples and Jesus said that they made those disciples twice the son of the garbage dump as they were? It just doesn't work. What is happening, and I told you this in our first study in the doctrine of hell, rather Jesus is using, to use language from Robert Yarbrough, the geographical reference of Gehenna, one that was harrowing to many people, associated with things like child sacrifice, one where it was defiled and things like offal and carcasses and garbage would be brought to burn. He's using this place, this geographical reference, as a symbol of an eschatological destiny that he wants all of his hearers to avoid at all costs. That's what's going on. It goes well beyond a garbage dump. It's symbolic of an eschatological destiny of unending, everlasting punishment. All right, now we go on. Not many verses. Go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Jesus, having just expounded the sixth commandment, now he expounds the seventh commandment. And you'll notice he makes pointed references to hell here. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is far more, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now again, context, contextual summation right here. Jesus is showing how deep the law goes. Somebody might say, I've never committed the act of physical adultery. But the question is, what goes on in your heart and what goes on in your imagination? Because you can commit adultery without doing the physical act by committing it in your heart and in your mind. So Jesus is showing how deep the law of God goes. And then he's showing that this is a serious sin and it should be taken seriously. And by the way, Notice, I didn't make the point before, but I'll make it right now. The other sin of having anger towards somebody or somebody having anger towards you, that should be taken very seriously as well. Look at Matthew chapter 5, maybe a little bit later on, uh, verses 23 through 26, and look at the application that Jesus makes. After he talks about the... Uh, the judgment of hellfire, he says, therefore, I'm going back to Matthew 5, 23 for a minute. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So he's going to use an example from the law courts after that, but he uses an example of corporate worship, if you will, first. To say, if you have a gift if you're bringing an offering and you're there online to bring it to the priest or something like that, and you realize, not that you have an issue against your brother, but that your brother has an issue against you. Because a lot of people could say, oh, I'm fine with so-and-so. Oh, I I'm fine. I have no problems with them. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about when you recall that your brother has something against you. It's so serious 
that it's as though you should leave your gift right there and then make a beeline for your brother to make things right. You may not be able to. Maybe that person doesn't want to reconcile, but you obey your Lord and you do what you can to make things right. It's as though you stop singing the song that you're singing in real time and you say, wait a minute, my brother has something against me. My sister has something against me. I have to go make this right. So there is application. Jesus introduces the subject of hell and shortly thereafter tells his people, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, this is what you do. This is how kingdom people act. Now, back to Jesus' exposition of the seventh commandment. He is calling people to take sin seriously. So a couple of doctrine, a few doctrine of hell observations. First, Jesus is showing that unrepentant cuddling with sin, adultery in the heart, and there's plenty of other ones that could be given, will lead someone to hell. One sin would be enough for somebody to go to hell. We're sinners by nature, we know that, and we're also sinners by choice. But Jesus is showing here that unrepentant cuddling with sin. And we see this all over the place in the New Testament. Right? Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, the works of the flesh. Galatians 5, 18-21. It's those who practice lawlessness that are told, depart from me. And so it's as though Jesus is saying to his people, look, take sin seriously. My people don't cuddle up with sin. Second, Jesus is helping his disciples understand how horrible the horrors of hell are by telling them, if, if plucking out your eye would keep you from this place, then you should do that. Now note, I think Jesus is using clear, graphic, hyperbolic language here. Why do I say that? Because if you plucked out your right eye, would that stop you from lusting? No, you got the left eye. You say, wait a minute, well, how if I plug out my left eye? You still got your mind's eye, right? You have your imagination. So what is Jesus teaching here, right? Jesus is saying, if, if that could make the difference and stop you from cuddling up with this sin over and over again, it would be better to do this graphic thing. Stop for a minute, let your mind imagine it, right? Imagine, you don't have to go too graphic with this, but imagine, taking out your eye would be a better choice than cuddling up with that sin and then ending up in the lake of fire. And we're not talking about salvation by works. God's people, those who are born again from above, they have crucified the flesh with its passions. They don't have a pattern of sin. They are, we are, yes, sinners, but there's a new nature inside of us. We've been born again, and all of a sudden there's a new work, a new principle at work in us, the person of the Holy Spirit. So you just can't do this kind of thing. You can't cuddle up with sin. But Jesus is showing here the radical response that sin of any kind ought to warrant from us. The radical response is far better than being cast into hell because the pains of hell are that horrific. Cutting off your hand, plucking out your eye, is nothing, nothing compared to the pains of hell that don't end. Third, uh, if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus is here, I would say, um, implying the resurrection of the unjust when he says, uh, for your whole body to be cast into hell. Implying there's coming a resurrection. The resurrection of the unjust is where those who have died in unbelief will have resurrected bodies that are fitted for 
everlasting destruction in the lake of fire. Fourth, I want you to notice the language that Jesus used twice. He uses the expression, verse 29 and verse 30, cast into hell. Cast into hell. Jesus often used this kind of language with respect to hell. Matthew 8, 12, he spoke of the sons of the kingdom being cast out into outer darkness. Cast. It's a Greek word, balo, means to throw. In Matthew 13, 49 and 50, Jesus spoke of the angels casting the wicked into the furnace of fire where there, where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9, the scripture warns about being cast into hell. In Matthew 22, in the parable of the wedding feast, the man who didn't have a wedding garment on is told by the king, or the king tells the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And again, in Matthew 25, in the parable of the talents, the unprofitable servant is sentenced to be cast thrown into outer darkness. I know there's that popular idiom, and there's merit to it, that whoever goes to hell goes there willingly. There's merit to that. We, by nature, love darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil. We choose darkness by nature. We love darkness by nature. But there's also a sense that when the sentencing comes, that the person who is thrown into the outer darkness, into the lake of fire, is put there forcibly. Yes, it's true, they go there willingly. But there's also a sense, when that sentencing comes, that they are put there forcibly, cast, thrown into hell. Comparatively speaking, what I'm about to say is small and trite in comparison with such an eternal matter. But I want you to think about this. Um, for a moment, because I think you will see that the comparison is worth mentioning. Have you ever been pushed into a pool by somebody? There's probably been a moment either you've pushed somebody or you've been pushed into a pool. And if that's ever happened to you, maybe like me, you know that there's a moment when all of a sudden you go over the edge and you know you can't get back to the edge that you were previously standing on. You know somebody has pushed you, and maybe for a split second, you know you are over the edge, and you are just moments away from being in the pool. When we look at this language here, there is going to come a moment when individuals are cast into the lake of fire, into outer darkness, and maybe even for a split second, they will know there is no going back. Wherever I was before I ended up here, I can never get back there. That is fearful. And that should make every one of us just make sure that we're doing due diligence to examine ourselves, to make sure we are in the faith, and that we love the Lord Jesus Christ by His grace. Now, there are um, other references uh, I, I won't go through these with you in extended detail right now. Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 13 and 14. Jesus speaks about the narrow road which leads to life and the broad road that leads to destruction, that narrow gate and the broad road. Um, two differing eternal destinies. You can see in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus gives a warning that is aimed, I think, primarily at religious hypocrites. 
Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. He goes on and he says, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Two points I want to make for you right there. You want to imagine a fearful moment? Go through Matthew 7, verses 21, and 20, 21 through 23. And look how Jesus repeatedly warns about a face-to-face reckoning with him. Not everyone who says to me, verse 21, many will say to me in that day. And Jesus says in verse 23, I will declare to them a face-to-face reckoning. And we're reminded of who the individuals are who end up in the lake of fire, those who practice lawlessness. So those who, out of an unbelieving heart, do not have the obedience of faith, do not render that obedience that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 7, 21, those who do the will of his Father. Let me take you to Matthew chapter 8. Uh, So turn ahead, go to Matthew chapter 8. I'll create a little bit of context here and give you a few points. Uh, Jesus is approached by a Roman centurion, who had told him that his servant was at home lying paralyzed and dreadfully tormented. Jesus said, I will come and heal him, you might remember. And in verses 8 and 9, the centurion says, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed, for I am also a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now you might be reminded here that Jesus said, Um, Jesus marveled when he heard these things, and he said, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So a few comments here. First, appreciate that these are revolutionary comments by Jesus, at least to some of the people of his day. They shouldn't have been in light of the Old Testament, but they were nonetheless radical. He's saying that people are going to come from the east and the west. And he's not just talking about like the east and the west of Israel. He's talking about Gentiles like this Roman centurion. They're going to, going to come people like that. And where are they going to come to? They're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Many Jews of that day did not imagine that Gentiles would be part of a great feast with the Messiah and Abraham. This was revolutionary in many ways. Notice there's also an implied rebuke. He says, but the sons of the kingdom. Who is he speaking about here? I think he's speaking about those who thought being a physical heir of Abraham guaranteed entrance into the kingdom of God. Those individuals, he said, would be cast into outer darkness. While many from the east and the west, they come and they sit down. That implies rest. And they would have communion with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the living God. But many would be thrown into the outer darkness. Notice, as it relates to the doctrine of hell, Jesus described hell as outer darkness. Why is hell described as a place of outer darkness? What is meant by that depiction? And God is often described in the scriptures as light. Right, 1 John 1, 5, God is light, in him is no darkness. 
We go through the Old Testament and we see that he wraps himself with light like a garment. His people are described as being those who would walk in the light of his countenance. You could look at Psalm 89, verse 15, Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2. So the idea of hell being a place of outer darkness connotes not walking or being in God's favor. It also connotes being at a place of distance from God's gracious presence while suffering his divine wrath. So when you think of darkness, we know that God, for instance, had given a, uh, the ninth plague uh, against Egypt was a plague of darkness. So dark it could be felt. And maybe in many ways was a type of the judgment of hell that is to come. The outer darkness is a place that is uh, where God is present in judgment, no doubt. But the gracious presence of God is not there. He's not there in favor. He's not there manifesting his kindness. There's an absence of that. And there's weeping there. Weeping, you obviously know, connotes internal agony. The weeping is not described as ending. It's just ongoing weeping. Imagine that. You've been at moments in your life when you've been broken or so sad, but you're here right now and you're not weeping. And weeping has ended. Right? We know that many times Christians will quote that blessed truth that weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning. There's no joy coming in the morning in hell. Ongoing weeping. And then we're also told it's a place of gnashing of teeth. What's connoted by gnashing of teeth? Well, two things when you look at the scriptures. One would be anger. One would be anger. Acts chapter 7, verse 54, those who stoned Stephen, we recall, gnashed at him with their teeth. So remember, one of the reasons, not the only reason, why hell is a place of eternal, everlasting punishment one of those reasons is because sin against an infinitely holy God deserves infinite punishment. But also, if you just think through this logically, those in hell don't stop sinning when they get to hell. There's ongoing anger, gnashing of teeth. They're not in hell saying, I'm sorry. Remember in Luke chapter 16, the rich man? One of the things you don't hear from his lips while he's in Hades, the place of torment, before he gets thrown into the lake of fire... You don't hear, I'm sorry. You don't hear, I was wrong. But what there will be in hell is a gnashing of teeth. So one thing connoted in that is anger. Another thing connoted in that is pain. Pain. Um, Mark chapter 9, verse 18. We see the excessive pain of that boy who was seized by a mute spirit, thrown down, who foamed at the mouth and gnashed at his teeth. Imagine that. Non-stop weeping and non-stop gnashing of teeth. And that is the response, to use language from Revelation 14, 11, of the torment that ascends forever and ever. And I want to say this, I belabored this point when, in our first study, why study the doctrine of hell? With every bit of description that Jesus gives about hell, you have to have in your mind that it is holy and righteous and just. It is not God's overreaction. It is God's perfectly, holy, right, measured, appropriate reaction to unrepentant sin. Those goalposts can never move 
God is light in whom there is no darkness. His justice is absolutely perfect. You and I may cringe when we think about somebody going there. You and I may cringe when we think of the horrors of hell. But one thing we should never do is question the righteousness of the God who prepared such a place for those who don't believe the gospel. Now let me make a couple of points briefly and then I'll close for the sake of time. Um, If you were to look in Matthew chapter 10, verses uh, 14 and 15, you could also reference Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 25, and you would see that there are differing degrees of punishment on the day of judgment. For example, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 14 to 15, Jesus said, And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So why will it be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than that city? For cities that he references in other places like Chorazin or Bethsaida and so on. Because the gospel went to those cities. Because mighty works were done in those cities. So here would be the principle. At least one of the reasons why on the day of judgment punishment will be worse for some than others is because some have rejected greater measures of light. So the greater measure of light that you have rejected will warrant a greater degree of punishment on the day of judgment. That's why it will be more tolerable for some than others on that day. At least one reason. That's why I had said some years back at a Christmas Eve service while preaching through Matthew 2 that Even being here can be a dangerous place to be if you do not come to the gospel. Because you have light. The light of the Son of God being proclaimed in the scriptures and in the gospel. That is great light. Other generations, people in this world, not everybody has that light. To reject that light is to incur great wrath. You could look at Hebrews 10.29 for further reinforcement of that. You could look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verses 47 through 48, about the servant that pseudo-servant who wasn't a true servant, who knew his master's will but didn't do it, and such a one would be beaten with more stripes. Well, um, the the last text I will give to you for tonight before making a quick reference to Matthew 25 will be from Matthew 10. Uh, So go to Matthew 10, and I'll prepare to close. Uh, Matthew 10 Jesus said, verse 28, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, Jesus had been speaking about the suffering that his disciples would face. You can just look at the context and you would find that. He told them that they would be delivered up to councils and scourged in synagogues. Matthew 10, 17. He told them that some of them would be put to death. 1021. He told them that they would be hated by all people for his namesake. Matthew 10:22. He told them that when they were persecuted, they were to flee from one city to another, verse 23. And yet he told them, speak, speak. Even though all of this is coming your way, you keep speaking. And then he told them essentially this, because you can imagine them saying, okay, I'm kind of a, a little bit afraid here. I'm afraid of suffering. I'm afraid of dying. And it's as though Jesus said, don't be afraid. All they could do is kill you. (laughs) It's so the opposite of how we tend to think. But that's essentially what he told them. 
So all they could do is kill the body, but they can't do anything else. But I'll tell you who to fear. There should be one fear, it's as though he's telling them, that should dominate all other fears. When faced with losing your life, with faced with, with suffering for the gospel and dying for the gospel, here he is telling them, here's the one fear that should dominate all fears. Don't fear him who could throw you into prison or kill the body and do nothing else. Fear him who could throw both body and soul into hell. He is using the doctrine of hell here to motivate them to a kind of courageous fearlessness despite loss, despite destruction, despite pain, despite martyrdom, despite, if you will, the temporary discomfort of dying for the gospel. He's saying, put this in perspective. All they could do is kill you. All they could do is take away your physical life. You don't want to deny the Son and be denied by the Son. You don't want to deny him. And one of the ways that you're guarded by the grace of God, you being born again from above and preserved by his grace, is by remembering that believers don't deny the Son. They confess him before men, and they know that Jesus will confess them before his Father and the holy angels. And in somewhere in your mind, you know that the one who denies him has something much more to, greater to fear than losing their physical life. And that would be having their soul and body cast into hell. I think, I think this is part of what went through um, Polycarp's mind. You know Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, who was martyred in 155 AD? He was betrayed and he was brought before the Roman proconsul. And when he was brought before the Roman proconsul, he was essentially told to venerate Caesar, to offer a pinch of incense, and he could be spared. He could go about his life. He could go about his ministry and so on. All he had to do was venerate Caesar. But he wouldn't do it. And proconsul told him that he had wild beasts. If you refuse, he told Polycarp, I will throw you to them. Polycarp, unmoved by that, his different renderings of the story essentially said, send them. The proconsul, seeing that Polycarp was not moved by that, said, if you despise the beasts, I will send you to the fire. Swear, and I will release you. Reproach Christ, and I will set you free. Polycarp said, 80 and six years I have served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme the king who saved me? You threaten the fire that burns for an hour and then is quenched. But you know not of the fire of the judgment to come and the fire of eternal punishment. Bring what you will. You see an aged brother who's on the brink of martyrdom? What does he have in his mind? You're facing me with fires. You're threatening me with fires. You don't know about this unquenchable fire. And why is that fire unquenchable? Because it always has something to feed on. That resurrected body of the unjust that will forever be there where the worm does not die and the fire does not quench. There's this ongoing decomposition. There's this ongoing suffering. And Polycarp, to some degree, has that in his mind. And through the word of Christ, doubtless, to some degree coming to his mind, he is protected from apostasy in that moment. Notice that Jesus is also here assuming the resurrection of the body, right? Fear him who can cast what? Not just your soul into hell like the rich man in, Lazarus, in, in Luke chapter 16. Fear him who can cast soul and body in hell. Now you know when you look at Daniel 12 too, that resurrection of the unjust is to everlasting shame and everlasting condemnation. You look at Jesus' words in Matthew 25 verse 46. 
It's a resurrection to everlasting punishment. There's more I could say. For the purposes of time, I'll prepare to close. You could look in Matthew 13. You'd see more about the doctrine of hell there. You could look in Matthew 18, and you'd see Jesus talk more there. Matthew 22, Matthew 23, Matthew 24, and Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, verse 46, Jesus said, These will go away, he's talking about the goats who are on his left hand, to everlasting punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The same adjective is used to describe life, and the same adjective is used to describe punishment. Ionios in the Greek. Eternity, age long. The punishment of hell is forever. Jesus described hell in Matthew 25, 41 as the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the place that was prepared for that ancient serpent of old and those rebellious angels who fell with him will be the place that those who have rebelled against God and have not believed the gospel will share as their eternal inhabitation. Eternal habitation. How fearful is that? Imagine going to the place that was prepared for Satan and his fallen angels, and because you rejected the gospel, you rejected the light of Christ and the gospel and the forgiveness of sins, to go to the place where they will be, and that was prepared for them. The inhabitants of hell are there forever. The debt is everlasting because the offense has been committed against an infinite holy God who is infinitely great, infinitely holy, infinitely majestic. And second, as I noted before, the debt will only be added to, I would argue, in hell because people aren't going to repent. And I close tonight by saying this. Thanks be to God for the debt that was paid for on the cross completely through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are the only way to receive that gift. Repentance towards God and faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you believe the gospel and you say, Jesus bore what would have been my hell, as it were. He bore the wrath of God on the cross. You do this. You flee to Jesus. You run to Him and you flee from the wrath to come. How do you flee from the wrath to come? By running to Jesus. And as 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 says, Jesus is the one who saves us, delivers us from the wrath to come. So you flee from the wrath to come by fleeing to Jesus, and then you get to look forward to this amazing moment where instead of hearing, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The believer will hear, come, you blessed of my Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the words of your son. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. We pray, Father, that you would help us afresh in light of what we studied tonight to hallow your name as sons of the living God, as children of light, as the light of the world, as the salt of the earth, help us, Heavenly Father, to run in the path of your commandments, not because we're trying to secure our salvation, but because we're working out our salvation. Thank you for securing forgiveness for us through the gospel of your Son. Thank you for the gift of faith and the grace of repentance. And we pray, Heavenly Father, 
that knowing the terror of the Lord, we might by your grace go out and persuade men and women. Father, we pray that you would help us to make the treasure of the gospel known. And even as our Lord knew about the wrath to come and did not hide it or shy away from it, Father, help us to dispense the backdrop of the appropriate and holy divine wrath that awaits and even abides on those who do not believe the gospel, even as we present the best news ever, what you did in sending Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to die on the cross for our sins and to rise from the grave so that all who believe in him might be forgiven, not perish eternally, but have everlasting life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.